This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, pressure is piling up on the tech titans, including the likes of Google and Facebook, over their failure to tackle the scourge of misinformation and toxicity and their ever more obvious dominance of digital revenue in the media marketplace. But in Australia, the government has confronted them on both fronts and it's still putting on more pressure from the very top. Social media is becoming a, a coward's palace where people can just go on there, not say who they are, destroy people's lives and do so with impunity. That's not right. We ask an Aussie expert whether we should be following in their footsteps on this. Also, we look at surprising claims that expensive new medicines are more important to us than the COVID vaccine and that this issue could cause a change in government. But first, thank you very much for your kind injection. To boost vaccination rates, TV turned the clock back this weekend with an old school telethon. So how did that go? So instead of big surges in cases, we want to see a big surge in vaccinations this week. In order to help with that, I have the pleasure to announce today a blast from the past to support and encourage our nationwide vaccination effort. This Saturday between 12 and 8pm on Channel 200 and supported to date by Discovery screened on 3 and Māori TV and uh, streaming on Hahana Facebook, will be holding a Vaxathon. That was Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern last week announcing a Vaxathon to pump up the jabs this weekend, with some big news media outlets making it an eight-hour televised extravaganza, a throwback to this sort of thing from days gone by. Really busy, aren't you? And also finding a way tonight, over in the audience we have Howard Morrison. Kia ora, and welcome to Telethon. We indeed are Hamilton. Are we Hamilton? And this was the biggest national broadcast of its kind for many years, broadcast live from Kaitaia, Otara, Rotorua, New Plymouth, Otutahi Christchurch, Porirua, Wellington and plenty of other places too. And it ran across more channels at once than any event since the Rugby World Cup final from Eden Park almost exactly 10 years ago. And adding to the throwback vibe, the HQ was Avalon, the TV centre purpose-built in the 1970s, which later became a great white elephant of broadcasting marooned in the Hutt Valley. On Friday, TVNZ announced it had decided to come to the party too, with seven hours of the live coverage on TV2 and more online. We believe in the mahi taking place this Saturday, they said, and we love working with our fellow broadcasters, they added, albeit rather late in the piece. But in the run-up, not all media personalities were getting in behind. Uh, they're having a rah-rah vaccine day this weekend. What result are they looking for? Who would know? And if we don't know, when is the end? And if they hit a wall of resistance, then what? Who would know? News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking on the air last Tuesday, and that wall of resistance he spoke about there has been much on his mind in recent times. Two months ago, Mike Hosking was saying this. 55,000 a day, four or five months, would have seen over 8 million doses handed out. That would give us about the coverage most Western nations have been able to deal with before you hit a fairly serious wall of resistance. Now back then, Mike Hosking reckoned we'd hit that wall at about 77 or 78 percent of eligible Kiwis, a level that, as we now know, has already been clearly surpassed. And even after his own employers at NZME began a campaign to get 90 percent of Kiwis jabbed by Christmas time, Mike Hosking continued to pour cold water on that target too. Just last Monday, News Talk ZB was running this promo for his show. 
Talking the issues that matter. Here's the cold hard reality. If they're going to stick hard and fast to 90%, as much as I'd like to say otherwise, we are not getting there. I'm not sure that they've been totally clear with us about how long this will take. And he wasn't the only one at ZB unenthusiastic about the Vaxathon this weekend. When News Hub's Patrick Gower, who was one of the star hosts, said he reckoned it would be a magical moment in New Zealand history, ZB's Heather Duplessis Ellen didn't agree. I'm really worried about this, Patty. I'm, I'm, I'm really worried that this is going to be an absolute unmitigated disaster and really lame. Yeah, well, you are going to be proven totally, totally wrong by that because I haven't been involved with anything lame ever. And I think it'll be the exact opposite. So would Teeks or Taika Waititi in 2021 rack up the crowds like Howard Morrison back in 1988? And could Ashley Bloomfield and the Briscoes lady connect like Angela Dordney or Judy Bailey back in the day? Well, that's a tough ask, and many of the celebs who would usually have been in their boots and all among the great unwashed couldn't be because of Auckland's Level 3. But in the end, this was all about how people would respond on the ground around the motu or not, once Super Saturday kicked off. Kia ora, I'm Sonny Ngātai, and I know what you're thinking. Who the hell is this guy? It's OK. I don't know who I am sometimes either. But I'm not the only villager in this village, because it's going to take a village. So let me introduce you to my first sister from another mister. It's Narelle Sindos. And early on in the broadcast after midday, it was clear that it was already taking off before the TV had turned on. I didn't pass stats in the semi form, but did I just see over 50,000 today... And I think I just saw that the Māori count had also been around just short of 10,000. So we've seen a massive amount of numbers of backs updates. Look, you've got the top town there at the moment. Does that say Coromandel? Wow, that is awesome. And fascinating that Coromandel should be the top town early on, after the district's own mayor was in the news earlier in the week for refusing the Pfizer vaccine, as well as RNZ's questions about it. If, if that's the end of the questions, I'm going to go now. I've got other things that I need to do. Thank you. What's unsafe about it? Now, the hours of live crosses to community centres, mud eye and medical centres around the country and the prospect of Patrick Gow on TikTok or Clark Gayford on the decks and the bands, the DJs and the presenters all bantering in-house, all that may not have been everyone's cup of tea. And those who grizzle about te on the air would have been exposed to a lot more than they would have felt comfortable with also. But in the end, what mattered was jabs in arms all day long. 66,500 total vax counts so far. Just over 10,500 mouldy vaccinations. Amazing work there. And in terms of second vax done. So Aotearoa, we have now hit 100,019 vaccinations today, which is awesome. Yes, baby. But let's not stop there. We set a target for ourselves. Aotearoa, you've done it, but let's keep going. Breaking news, Fano. breaking news. We've just gone past 130,000. Come on up. Come on up. Come on up, Fano. Come on up. But it wasn't all about just that final score either. It was also crucial on Super Saturday to get as many first doses done as possible, especially in so far under-jabbed communities and regions. And on TVNZ One News that night, that was why Wendy Petrie asked immunologist Maya Brewerton this. Around 30% were first doses. Did you want to see that higher? 
Yeah, look, I think both first and second doses matter. I guess the first doses we really focus on because that sort of suggests the target we might be able to reach. I think looking at Māori, it's quite interesting. Um, it was more like a 50-50 division, I think, last time I looked at the data for Māori. And actually, it was the biggest day of vaccination for Māori as well. So I'm happy with first doses and I'm happy with second doses. As the editorial in the Stuff papers pointed out on Saturday, before everything kicked off, numbers aside, this was also about rebuilding social cohesion, which, Stuff said, has frayed dramatically with Delta, making this a much tougher task than New Zealanders had expected. But the editorial went on to make a case that was in itself a bit more divisive, when it said that Super Saturday should now be followed by firmer targets and timelines from our government and plans for relaxed lockdowns and open borders. And that was echoed by Stuff political editor Luke Malpass, who said keeping the public in limbo cannot continue any longer. And while he was at it, he dismissed what he called the epidemiological echo chamber for level four. Now, whatever the number of Super Saturday vaccinations means in the end, one thing that won't change is the steady stream of strident opinion aired in the media about how our COVID strategy should now adapt. Hayden Donnell took a look at the increasing volume of those opinions, in both senses of the word, on Midweek Media Watch this week, talking to Karen Hay on nights on RNZ National last Wednesday. If you missed it, that's on our page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts. Last Monday, RNZ's Conan Young was out and about in Christchurch asking people about COVID and worries about it spreading to their communities. And one woman who worked for a construction company with about 100 employees told him this. A lot of people don't realise what the cost is to business owners by not getting vaccinated and relying on Facebook is to be a a be-all and end-all of knowledge. Where are you getting your research from? Facebook, Instagram or a scientist? She's not the only one also worried about people doing their own vaccination research on Facebook or Instagram and coming to the wrong conclusions. In a long reflection on the power of big tech platforms last week, the spin-off's managing editor Duncan Grieve noted that as the number of first doses administered began to fall worryingly the previous week, some anti-vaxxers were spamming the Facebook stream of a 1pm press briefing with vaccine falsehoods, while the Prime Minister herself was urging everyone on the stream to get vaccinated as soon as possible. So where's the moderation at Facebook then? The intervention that could stop this from happening? Well... Not here, it seems. The vast majority of Facebook's human moderators are focused on the US. And when Duncan Grieve asked Facebook where its moderators for New Zealand were, the only response was a statement from a nameless Facebook company spokesperson who said this. Our content moderation approach is global and operates 24-7 across multiple time zones and in many different languages. Duncan Grieve concluded that two of the biggest and most profitable companies the world has ever known, Facebook and the search titan Google, operate here with less regulation than the average local takeaway or taxi firm. The New Zealand Herald also published Duncan Grieve's critique last week to a bigger audience than a spin-off alone could attract, but still, his urging for more oversight would, you'd think, make about as much impact on Mark Zuckerberg as the worries of that anonymous construction company woman fearing the day-to-day consequences of COVID misinformation in Christchurch. However, those at Facebook's top table were certainly worried when a former employee from its own misinformation team testified in the US Congress last week and went very public on national TV. 
it's easier to inspire people to anger than it is to other emotions. Misinformation, angry content is enticing to people and keeps them on the platform. Yes. An earlier set of leaked internal documents published by the Wall Street Journal called The Facebook Files also showed that the social network knows all about many of the ill effects that it creates. Mark Zuckerberg in turn insisted that Facebook spends more on research and on safety than larger companies like Apple, Microsoft and the dominant search engine Google. And while the timing might be a coincidence, Google held a virtual summit last week called Fighting Misinformation in the Asia-Pacific Region. Now, in that meeting, Google offices restated the company's core mission to index the world's information for us all, regardless of political viewpoints. And the vast bulk of that stuff is either extremely handy or harmless. But Google also owns the world's preeminent video sharing platform, YouTube, and that houses millions of hours of fact free comment and claims, endlessly and algorithmically boosted to millions of fresh eyeballs, along with the often toxic text comments that accompany them. Now, in Australia, the government there has confronted their dominance and the conduct of Facebook and other online platforms. Back in February, it became the first country in the world to use its competition laws to force Facebook and Google to pay for the news media's content. Just last week, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison hinted at further action on harassment and misinformation. Social media has become become a, a coward's palace where people can just go on there, not say who they are, destroy people's lives and say the most foul and offensive things to people and do so with impunity. Now, that's not a free country where that happens. That's not right. And, you know, the companies, if they're not going to say who they are, well, they're not a platform anymore. They're a publisher. They're a publisher. Now, no politician here has said anything like that about the big tech companies, although the Broadcasting and Media Minister Chris Farfoy has said he's watching what's happening in Australia. Now, also taking part in that Google Summit on Misinformation last week was political science and journalism expert, Associate Professor Andrea Carlson from Melbourne's La Trobe University, who earlier this year published a landmark report on how misinformation might be tackled in this part of the world. The funder of that report, incidentally, was Facebook itself. And this week, Professor Carlson published The Grand Bargain, a new analysis of that groundbreaking deal struck with Australian news media in which she says big tech's hold over the media industry may be set to change. I guess at face value, there's clearly a problem for democracies globally, as you've said in the introduction there, um, about how you manage this unregulated space that enables digital platforms unprecedented market share of advertising and as a conduit for misinformation and disinformation. But if I could be a little bit more controversial, I think the answer in Australia really lies with the fact that we have Rupert Murdoch's News Corp as a dominant media player in our media marketplace. Murdoch and his publications have been putting pressure on the government for some time to address the growing market share of big technology companies such as Google and Facebook. This led to the government um, ordering an ACCC inquiry into the market share of the digital platforms. That inquiry reported back with a host of recommendations and among them was that Australia establish a news media bargaining code to get the companies to pay for third-party news content on their websites. And the other component that came out of that, which has since been developed, is a voluntary code of practice for the platforms on how to manage misinformation and disinformation.
Facebook recently has been under heaps of pressure. Um, the Wall Street Journal and the, the Facebook files, uh, Francis Hugan, the whistleblower, for example, do you think that has actually damaged the company because they've written out scandals like Cambridge Analytica and so on before and they're still as powerful and profitable as ever? Yeah, I think it has a cumulative effect, but I think what was particularly potent about these um, alleged or these allegations was that at the heart of them is young people that, and that's why we've seen a greater call of action, I think, with these latest allegations, particularly in the US, where there's such reticence to limit freedom of expression under the First Amendment right. Look, Andrea, it was probably the timing, just a coincidence, but Google uh, for the Asia-Pacific region held a, a summit, an online virtual gathering uh, to talk about its um, efforts to counter misinformation uh, just last week. You and I were both um, a part of that. Now, the the company's officers and executives who spoke there, they seemed pretty comfortable with the efforts they made to enhance trust and safety and money put into um, moderation. There didn't seem like a sense of sort of crisis or um, a public relations problem such as Facebook seems to be facing. Do you think Google, which is you know so dominant in its field of search, is actually doing a good job because it owns YouTube and there's an awful lot of that stuff on that platform. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, it's really great to see the companies engaging with the problem of mis- and disinformation because it's a fire hydrant that is just keeps flowing, enormous amounts of information. But are the companies doing enough? I think there's always more that can be done because this is a global problem that's not going away anytime soon. And it was good that you and I were invited along to listen to what's going on. But I think there needs to be more formalised engagement with all the different stakeholders, whether they be journalists or civil society actors or uh, academics uh, and policymakers to really look at the multiple ways that fake news can be addressed. Uh, It's not a problem that can be solved by just one platform as it runs across all platforms. Well, you were the lead author of a big report that came out last February about misinformation in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, In that, uh, the report says the spread of global online misinformation has the potential to erode foundational elements of modern civilization. That's pretty serious. Uh, And also saying uh, misinformation surrounding COVID-19 has exposed the broader potential of information disorder on the internet that could jeopardise public health and safety. But what what other sort of conclusions and actual recommendations did you uh, come up with in the the report that you thought might actually help governments, you know, in this part of the world or elsewhere, actually deal with the effects of all that? This uh, research was part of a research award that I received from Facebook, which was in the lead up to Australia developing its own mis- and disinformation code, which I mentioned before, And the reason I look to the Asia-Pacific, namely Singapore and Indonesia, is because those two countries, they've actually legislated against fake news. It's problematic in many ways because the government gets to determine what is fake news and they also get to determine uh, how they're going to respond to it. And it may not surprise some listeners that when you give governments that much power, the targets of these fake news laws in those countries has largely been journalists and political opposition, um, both messengers of information 
that governments may not like. I happened to be in um, Singapore a few years back when they were starting to debate what became the Protection from Online Falsehoods and Manipulation Act, or I think POFMA, <laughs> for short. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and people said, look, this is dangerous in a place, I mean, Singapore already has, uh, you know, some authoritarian tradition, and um, this this could be dangerous, allowing the government to essentially determine um, what misinformation might be and then and then act on it. Uh, now that we have a crisis such as COVID, does it actually give them more scope to be able to knock down and take out stuff that is demonstrably you know, not in accordance with the science and you know, has the serious potential to misinform people and uh, have public health consequences? Are they actually better off for having uh, a, a blunt instrument like that to be able to deal with the problem in a crisis? I'm sure some of the policymakers in Singapore would argue yes, and POFMA has been able to capture some of the misinformation around COVID, particularly around harmful treatments and um, the efficacy of vaccines and that sort of misinformation. But the problem is, um, from my perspective, there were already laws in place that could have dealt with that misinformation without the very heavy-handed approach of anti-fake news laws. And in fact, um, Singapore is currently debating a bill in its parliament that looks to go even further, which is cracking down on foreign interference. So uh, in terms of democratic freedoms, there's real problems with the legislation, that there needs to be a multi-pronged approach. And that means that you need to have mitigation measures against fake news, um, such as fact-checking, taking down harmful content, and uh, important lesson was to avoid government overreach, which we've just been speaking about, not giving too much power to government to be the arbiters of what is fake news in case it is weaponised and misused. There's also a need to invest in digital education and media literacy programs and um, one that you would like, Colin, to support quality journalism because uh, antidote to low-quality information is evidence-based information and quality journalism can provide that. And then finally, the platforms need to work together and also provide a greater level of transparency to the public about how they're handling mis and disinformation, what they're taking down and what they're leaving up. And you mentioned their mitigation uh, being an important thing. So you have the Australian Communications and Media Authority. This is your regulator. So if there is, say, COVID-19 misinformation, something that could have serious consequences, whether it's in a news media platform, a news media publisher has put that up, or it's just something on social media on one of the big platforms like Facebook, can Australians complain about it and can the ACMA actually strike it down, get it, get it removed? Our regulator looks um, to more legacy media content and can um, issue warnings or even suspend licences if need be to um, broadcasters. But when it comes to online mis- and disinformation, the new code that was put in place is a voluntary one and it's self-regulation. And at the moment, there's no provision in the Act that went through Parliament to give any power to ACMA to be able to step in. And the government and has left the door open for it to go from being a voluntary regulation to a mandatory co-regulation, which is the pathway that Europe is now going down. And the Australian government with ACMA is watching to see how this self-regulation works in Australia to see whether Australia, they need to step in at some point and is something that will be revealed in coming months of how the public can deal directly with the overarching body called Digi, which all the platforms belong to, if they see something that they don't agree with. 
Yes, there was a representative from uh, the DIGI group um, at the Google Summit last week that we both took part in, and she was saying this has actually been adopted by, among others, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, TikTok, Twitter. In your mind, is it effective, albeit that it's new, is it effective that uh, all those groups are signing up to an agreed code? Well, I think it's good news that they're leaning in and they are being signatories, but keep in mind, I'm not sure they had a lot of choice as um, and another piece of legislation I think we'll talk about in a, in a moment, the News Media Bargaining Code, when that was being debated, there was enormous backlash from the tech giants. Both Google and Facebook threatened to leave Australia and, in fact, Facebook acted on that promise and pulled its news sites from um, Australia, uh, Australia's internet for uh, um, about a week, signing up to the code shows that they've got some good faith there. But I do think it's too early to tell how well it's working. Because all the platforms are quite different, their reports can also be different and they don't have to opt into every um, of the seven pillars that the code covers. So we need to see with time um, whether there's opting in and out of those seven pillars and how detailed the reports are, the level of transparency, and also whether they adequately deal with public complaints. Well, just recently, um, Andrea, a report came out about the news media bargaining code that that I think you wrote. This was, I think, the first really comprehensive look at um, how that bargaining code is progressing. I mean, is is it working well for Australian news and media and journalism? Because I read recently, for example, the Australian uh, office of The Guardian, Uh, that has been hiring journalists, launching projects off the back of money that it's getting from from the big platforms for using their news online. Yes, again, this is a really new development in Australia. The News Media Bargaining Code came into being earlier this year. So far, there's been 14 deals done between media companies with Google and there's been 11 done with Facebook. There's been interest also from the UK, Canada, and even the USA on adopting something similar. This is interesting because in the past, when countries have tried to get big tech to pay for news on their platforms, they've used copyright mechanisms. The Australian version uses competition law in order to compel the only Google and Facebook um, are named in the law to compel them to pay third parties. The Problem with the code, though, it would seem, is this picking and choosing about who gets to do a deal with the big tech companies and who doesn't. Facebook's been a bit tougher in picking and choosing who they're doing deals with. So we also need to watch this code really closely to see whether, first of all, who gets to do a deal and then whether it translates to what the policy intention is, which is to produce more public interest journalism. News Corp's been slashing jobs um, and they've been enormous beneficiaries of the News Media Bargaining Code. While it's um, commercial in confidence, media reports that I hear are fairly reliable um, suggest that they have made $30 million out of the deal that they've done on the code. And that's not necessarily translating into journalism jobs or into public interest journalism. Well, here the government identified a deficit in public interest journalism and uh, what it called at-risk journalism and set up a a fund running for three years, $50 million uh, or more in it, that will pay out for specific projects. That's attracted a bit of criticism because it increases dependence, suddenly creating a dependence among those media companies to fund its journalism. So the idea of getting it not from government but perhaps from these 
platforms would be appealing to a lot of people here. Do you think maybe New Zealand should try and follow what Australia has done? Well, far be it for an Aussie to tell New Zealanders um, how what they should be doing. But for democracies like Australia and New Zealand, there has been a chronic crisis of underfunding of newsrooms. And this has been going on for the most part of this century. And I hope that there is a contagion effect, that big tech does take the responsibility seriously and does support quality journalism. And I think the news media bargaining code is one way to do that. Someone's got to pay for journalism and given there's so much advertising that has migrated online and a lot of journalistic content is there for free um, and the platforms are the beneficiaries of that because it attracts readers and viewers, then there is some, um, some exchange that can be negotiated and Australia has shown that. And finally, Andrea, if I could take it back to where we began with the, the misinformation, uh, the hot topic of the moment, do, do the companies uh, really have a responsibility to actually address these things in smaller territories like New Zealand? Because at the moment it feels like they only really respond and put their efforts in in the really big markets, particularly the US, where most of the moderation, it seems, is, is focused upon. Country in New Zealand's kind of an afterthought tacked onto the Australian market, and uh, I don't know how big the Australian market's even regarded by the likes of Facebook and Google uh, and their their whole global enterprise. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, um, New Zealand did become a real central focus after the tragic events with the massacre at the mosques. And in one sense, that's also something that the New Zealand government can remind the platforms of if ever they aren't listening or appear not to be. Harm can happen in smaller countries just as it can in larger countries. And there's a responsibility to mitigate that harm across all jurisdictions, regardless of the marketplace size. That was Andrea Carlson, a former journalist who's now Associate Professor of Politics and Media at Melbourne's La Trobe University. Earlier this year, she published a landmark report on how misinformation might be tackled in this part of the world, and this month, an analysis of that deal struck by the tech platforms and the Australian news media industry called The Grand Bargain. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, while COVID vaccination is the government's clear top priority now, hence Super Saturday and the Vaxathon this weekend, critics have loudly condemned the lack of urgency during our COVID-free months gone by. The government was also criticised for not offering to pay more to Pfizer to get more doses delivered sooner, even though the company insisted it wouldn't have made any difference if they had. But pressure groups applying pressure to pay whatever it takes for medicine straight away is nothing new, and it hasn't gone away under COVID. Last Sunday, for example, News Hub at six viewers were told this. New Zealanders have sent a clear message to the government. Fund medicines better or face the political consequences. A survey released exclusively to News Hub reveals Kiwis want the government to pump more money into the drug-buying agency Pharmac. Now, for years, the rationing system operated by Pharmac to make the capped national spend on medicines go further has been controversial, and anger about people with serious illnesses missing out has been expressed a lot in the media during intense and emotional campaigns for access to costly new medicines for cancer treatment, cystic fibrosis and other conditions. 
And last Sunday, NewsHub's exclusive report began as almost all these stories do, with the personal plight of a person with a critical illness that could only be eased by expensive drugs that they can't afford themselves. Finding out the cancer drugs she needed weren't funded by the government was an added shock at the worst time for Fiona Matthew. My health was going, I didn't know where my treatment was going, and then suddenly I had to find funding for um, a large amounts of, of, of money. And the group that paid for that Colmar Brunton survey, Patient Voice Aotearoa, said their finding was actually even more stark than NewsHub put it. It said 9 out of 10 New Zealanders believe that access to modern medicines is as, or more important, than access to COVID-19 vaccines. On NewsHub at 6, Jenna Lynch broke that down for the viewers like this. They found 50% of Kiwis thought access to other modern medicines was as important as the COVID vaccine. A further 40% thought other medicines were more important. However, NewsHub didn't tell viewers that those opinions were gathered almost three months ago in the third week of July. Back then there was no community transmission of COVID-19 and the current outbreak hadn't yet pushed the vaccination rate to the very top of the political agenda. But even allowing for that, the questions in the Colmar Brunton survey for Patient Voice Aotearoa could also have coloured people's responses. For example, this was one question asked. How important do you personally believe it is for New Zealand to fund all cancer medicines for children? And after that... How important do you personally believe it is for New Zealand to fund all rare disorder medicines for children? Now, when asked like that, few people would say personally that it's not important to ease the suffering of children if it was possible. So when people were then asked this by Colmar Brunton... Do you believe that access to modern medicines that treat diseases and conditions are less, equally or more important than access to COVID-19 vaccines? Maybe it's not so surprising that 50% said it was just as important and a further 40% said it was either a little more important or much more important than COVID-19 vaccines. Respondents were then told by Colmar Brunton that Pharmac itself had said this year it would need over $400 million more each year to pay for all the medicines on its wish list. But in the budget, the government announced Pharmac would get just $200 million more over the next four years. And with that in mind, Colmar Brunton then asked people if they felt, personally, if the government should be funding Pharmac less or more. And the response, again, was predictable. And having supplied the survey exclusively to NewsHub, NewsHub gave all this a political treatment because Patient Voice Aotearoa added a political spin to their survey. The survey also asked, would this issue influence your vote? And 71% said yes. The clear message to the government, fund drugs properly or your political future is at stake. Now that would be music to the ears of a pressure group putting pressure on the government. And in NewsHub, they clearly have an ally prepared to get in behind their campaigns. Tonight we begin an investigation into a miracle drug that is the difference between life and death for a group of very ill Kiwis. But it comes with an eye-watering price tag. National correspondent Patrick Gar is here with all the details in our latest Because It Matters story. And at that time, campaigner Malcolm Mulholland appeared on the AM show making it personal for the Prime Minister. The floor is yours, Malcolm, and hopefully she will get this message from you at some stage today, if not right now. Prime Minister, Jacinda, we've known each other now for over a decade, but ever since we've been speaking out against Pharmac, uh, the communication trail has just gone cold. Why don't you come round, have a cup of tea? Now, using a personal connection and live TV to pressure a Prime Minister to change policy is not the way a healthy health system is supposed to work. 
After Patient Voice Aotearoa survey was aired exclusively by News Hub last weekend, News Talk ZB then picked it up like this. A new Colmar Brunton survey has found Kiwis have little faith in accessing medicine. And Radio Wate picked it up last Tuesday like this. Nine out of ten New Zealanders believe that access to modern medicines is as or more important than access to COVID-19 vaccines. These are stark stats derived from the survey. Stark indeed. And the reason that Patient Voice Aotearoa asked people to weigh up novel medicines against COVID vaccines is that the COVID vaccines aren't constrained by the Pharmac budget and they would like the same direct public funding for the life-saving new drugs that they want. But while that would help some people with debilitating and rare conditions and, of course, their families, COVID is a contagion and a national emergency which affects absolutely everybody. And it's odd that none of the reporters who were handed the survey by Patient Voice Aotearoa made that distinction. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on Midweek Media Watch during Nights with Karen Hay. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.